Well, that must be right. That's the way this thing amazes a lot. Like it's amazing, you know? It really is amazing. You know, the, the, the truth of the Bible is almost... It's almost too big to really appreciate as a common person, you know, that a king would die for his people, that a god would uh, would die for his people. You know, it's just it's just backwards to the world, and so it takes us a while sometimes to appreciate that it's true, but it is true. It's great. A uh, couple of announcements here. Again, we got the kiddos. Uh, I haven't heard if they've left Rio Dulce yet. Have anybody heard? No one's heard. Okay, so they'll be here sometime today. They're going shopping today. Who in the heck came up with that idea? My God. Anywho, uh, they'll be here when they're here. But tonight we'll do our, our normal stuff. We'll have our worship service, which is what we've been doing lately, which I've been really digging. Uh, we worship for 30, 40 minutes, and then we, uh, the other folks go home, the uh, knuckleheads stay. And, uh, and do a Bible study. This is in direct reaction to that little prophetic roundtable that we had uh, four or five weeks ago with Al Houghton and Janine and all those pastors from Amarillo and uh, across Plains and all over the place, Midland. Uh, that was a good uh, good deal. They deposited something here. But there was a couple of challenges that were left out there for the younger generation. And one of them was... was you don't know the Bible. Uh, most of them have not read the Bible from cover to cover. And uh, so we challenged them on that. And they picked up the challenge. And uh, I was just amazed. I said, well, so when are you going to start this Bible study? Well, Sunday. Well, Sunday. Okay, Sunday. That was like the next available moment. So they did. And it's been rocking and rolling ever since. It's been really, really good. So highly recommend that if you're an uncle-head generation, that's the sword generation, uh, that you come to that. And uh, they're having a great fellowship. You can tell the Lord is there. It is your time. Plus, you move with God. gives a moment of time for that. You should move with God. So it's there for them. I think it's great for the church as a whole. Another thing that uh, came forth out of all that, was this need for passion or zeal for the Lord. And uh, and I do think that those two things are, are related. If you read the Bible, that zeal will come. Uh, and so we'll be talking about that today, parenthetically. How's that for a word? Uh, talking about zeal for the Lord. Zeal has everything to do with the Lord's plan for his people. That's what it's about. And part of his plan for his people is to bring the body of Christ together, those who will. John 17, Jesus prayed that, that we would all become one. And he is formulating his bride through that process. Now, I'll just be honest with you, not everyone that hears the message will come. In fact, the Bible is really clear that most of them won't, that are already in the church. They will find excuses not to come. It's a sad thing. So God doesn't give up on that. He actually goes out further and into the highways and into the hedges and, 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 and compels others who don't even know him to come in to this feast for the, for the marriage. And there will be many coming in. Uh, they call it the great harvest. But there will be a huge outpouring 
of salvation at the very end. There was a prophet in Kansas City about 40-something years ago that prophesied that in, that in 2012, he actually put the number on it. This guy's dead by now. But in 2012, there will be a great harvest beginning, and there will be a billion souls saved. Did I say 2012? Are y'all sure? Okay. Second mistake I've ever made. The first one was, and then the second one. Anyway, 2020. So that's uh, uh, officially, you know, if you go by the Jewish calendar, that's uh, in September. 2020 will kick off. A billion souls will be saved. That's a lot of people, folks. Something's fixing to happen. And so, you know, we've been meeting together. These churches, it's like wave after wave after wave that this has happened over the last 20-something years that I've been involved with it here in Andrews, working on Jesus' prayer to come together. And we're at another level of it, or another time of it, I think. is a different working of it this time. I can literally see God doing what Jesus said he would do at the end. He's going to draw those together who will. And those who are lukewarm or don't have other reasons not to come, they will come. They're not coming. Next Sunday, instead of here for Sunday school, meet me at Lakeside Park. There's going to be a gathering of churches. Uh, we start at 9. So for y'all, we start at 8.30. Well, kill that city of refuge, Jeff. So if you show up at your normal late time, we'll be gone. Okay? We're going to start at 9. And so, come to get the best seat in the house. There are no seats. We're going to stand around the lake. Hopefully, we'll surround the lake. Just like they did 20, 40 years ago, in 1976. They surrounded the lake with citizens of Andrews, holding hands and praying for the town on 4th of July. And the question is, can we do that again? That'll be an interesting question to answer, won't it? The word has gone out. It's been in the newspaper. It's been on Facebook. We had over a thousand hits on Facebook. Everybody knows. There is no excuses except what they will come up with if they come up with it. We may be shocked. We may fill that whole place up. Well, that'd be great. So next Sunday, go to the lake. Go to the place where we have the Awana barbecue. That's where we'll be meeting. And if we get enough people, we're going to surround that lake. But we are going to sing songs. We've got our, our worship team going to hang out there. Y'all will probably be the only ones that know the songs that we'll sing, so y'all come. We've already had some issues about that. I can't use my hand signals anymore, so I won't say anything about that any further. We will sing good songs. And uh, and then we'll come back here if we have enough time. And uh, we'll just have a regular church, uh, Sunday school, I mean Sunday morning service. No Sunday school. At 1030. Okay? We probably don't have worship because our instruments will still be out there. But we will have a little service. Maybe we'll just share uh, about what went on. Who knows what we're going to do. But that's a big deal. God is moving. He really is moving. It's kind of a crazy thing to see him move because it's a little bit different this time. It really is different. So, to me, it all goes back to the same way we're going to talk again about today. It's called the zeal of the Lord. Uh, will we have zeal when he returns? Um, I guess that's debatable. Because there is one huge group of people at the end 
who are described as not having zeal. They're called the Laodicean Church. The Laodicean Church is an interesting church. Some people do uh, dispensational teaching, uh, which I don't particularly agree with, but whatever. And if if you do, you believe in that, then the the Laodicean Church is is the church at the end time. It's the last church mentioned in Revelation. And the Laodicean Church is one thing. Jesus said nothing good about it. He had nothing but rebuke for it, but a great call if they would repent. If they would sit with Jesus in his throne. They are called to, they're called to lead, but they won't lead because they're too busy with stuff. They're too busy. And he says, you are lukewarm. Lukewarm. That is without zeal. See, because zeal is like boiling. It is heated up emotion. And so he says, you don't have it. You're lukewarm. I would rather that you be cold than lukewarm. Isn't that an amazing statement? He would rather you not even know him than to know him a little bit. And that's why he doesn't matter. And that's crazy. Because I'd rather you be hot or cold, but lukewarm, you get to take it out of here. He'll spew you out of my mouth. They say that lukewarmness is the hardest thing to overcome as a Christian. Lukewarmness. And so those who are in that mode usually have walls around their lives. In fact, the the name Laodicea means walled places. Isn't that crazy? Is there any place like that, Andrews? No? Okay. I'm for sure I thought I saw a wall. Uh, Walled places. Why do you build walls? Keep people out when he wants to bring them in. Isn't that nuts? And he said of that church, you think you have everything you need, that you're clothed, you're rich, you see, and you don't know your true condition. You're blind. You're naked. And the fact that you think you don't need anything tells me everything. I'll get you out of me. I don't know you. So this is, this is our situation that we are in right now. In America, in the body of Christ, standing at the precipice of a prophecy that says, a billion people need to get saved. It just doesn't add up, does it, folks? Something is fixing to happen. And one thing I will tell you about these guys who are meeting, we've been meeting every week to pray and share. It's been interesting. But the one thing that has continuously come up, let me shut me down here. There is a sense, and they haven't heard this prophecy that I just quoted to you guys. They haven't heard this at all. But there is a sense among these guys that something big is coming in September. Isn't that weird? And they don't have the same TV stations that we have, you know, God's channel. Something's going down. So it's time to dig in. I love the way this church is reacting to the word that was brought to it with this Bible study by the, by the knuckleheads. They're going to turn on. They are getting zealous. They're finding out things in the Bible that were always there, but it's new to them. So it's like a new car. It's new to them. It's great. All right. Let's talk the last one about zeal. Now, 
It is a passion. It's not a mood. It's a passion that burns. It burns so heavily that it forces action. When a person like God has zeal, at some point it boils over and something happens. If it's things that are not good, they're fixing to get judged and burned up. If it's for something, then it's for love. It literally describes the relationship between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. The man is jealous over his wife because she is she belongs to him. And vice versa. So, zeal is, is normally uh, used in two different ways. Jealousy, which is a desire for what belongs to you. It's okay to be jealous over your husband or your wife, people. In fact, if you're not, you're lukewarm. Ask your spouse how they like it if you're not jealous over them. Ladies, can I ask you that question? Is it okay for your husband to be jealous over you? Do you really like that, really, secretly? You want him to knock someone's head off if they flirt with you. Right? But you'll never tell him that. Right? But it is true, is it not? You will see him run through a wall for you, right? And if we know it's the same one in the other direction. Right? Women and being jealous of their husbands. My God. We're talking about intensity. Envy is another word for zeal. And it's... That same emotion says it's for things that don't really belong to you. You want what is not supposed to be yours. But it comes out of the same emotion. So God is jealous over his people because they belong to him. People are envious of other people because they have things that you want and, and you don't get. See, if I want a new car, well... <laughs> if I want someone else's wife, envy. If I want someone else's house, envy. If I want to do the right thing for the Lord, jealous. Okay? And Jesus himself showed us how it's supposed to work. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Zeal for the right things of God consumes me. And that's where we want to go. Okay? That's where we want to go. So, uh, I tell you, God is provoked to action anywhere it has to do with his plan for his people. He will invade history and change the course of history over the issue of zeal. When he sees his people going down a path that they should not go or that someone else is forcing them to go, he will interrupt history. He split the Red Sea over it. You know what I mean? These guys would have killed his people. Did it move God? Oh, like crazy. Not only did he split the Red Sea, he killed the enemies. So he will, he will intervene in history in the name of zeal for his plan for his people. Especially his bride. Because in essence, it really is about husband-wife relationship. So when he says sees anything concerning his bride, he's about to move. Okay? So, it only makes sense 
that this will intensify as we get to the end of time. Because the end of time, the end of time is defined by a wedding. So the closer we get to that issue, the more you're going to see the zeal of the Lord. Okay? So what I want to do today is kind of go through a little bit of that part, portion of the zeal. Let's go back in time to some stuff we, we, we studied a few months ago. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. I'm going to bring some other things that we've studied into this equation. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, the last portion of it, is everything to do with the end time. Okay, so we're going to read a section of that. And it literally shows us an example of what the end time is going to look like by focusing us on a time uh, 4,000 years ago. So let's just read it, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Hebrews 12, verse 18. <clears throat> it says, You have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. If so much as a beast touches this mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. So that was an example of what's coming. He, he looked at what happened with Moses. Let's keep reading. So here's the, we're going to make some comparisons along the way. You've not come to that mountain. But what you've come to, verse 22, is Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That description that we just read is a picture of the church, especially the bride. You've not come to what happened back in Mount Sinai and the Jews. You've come to the bride and Mount Zion. To an innumerable company of angels. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Who are the registered in heaven. To God, the judge of all, through the spirits of just man made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, that was Moses, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, by which we may serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Okay, so we have a comparison of, of a, an event that happened 4,000 years ago or so. It was an event that's going to happen soon. And it has to do with shaking and other things, fire. Let's go back to the original example and, and learn a couple of the lessons that's going to apply to us as we move forward. Look in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. Let's go look at the first shaking.
Exodus 19, verse 17. Let's look at the mountain itself first. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke. There's your fire. Because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of the furnace, and the whole mountain quaked or shook greatly. And then the blast of the trumpet and all that sort of thing, the voice. Freaked everybody out. There's your first shaking. All right. Now, back up. He said he took the people there. Look at verse 5. He's telling the people something. He's preparing the people for the shaking before they get there in verse 5. He says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure. Special word there. Special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So before the shaking was about to take place, God moved on a group of people and offered them a deal. If you will keep my covenant, then you're going to be a special people to me. Above everybody else on earth, a special treasure. Right. He's preparing these people for what's about to take place. Now, I bring this up because this scripture is important to you. If you're a member or go to this church, we did that chapter in Lake City in 2017. God told me to read that chapter and ask you, do you want to be a special people, a special treasure to him? And everybody said yes. We gave you a t-shirt. You have the t-shirt. Interesting word is that word special treasure, I didn't know it at the time, was the same word that he gave me five years previous when we went to Lake City. And he says, I will make them my jewels. That's an end time scripture. I'm going to make them my jewels. Special treasure. So before the shaking, he offers a deal to those who will listen to the deal. They are going to be special to him above all people on the earth. I think he's already started that. I'm telling you that what he's doing is he is calling out to those that will listen, would you like to be my bride? That's special. Some people are going to respond in the right way, and some aren't. In my book, I can't see everybody doing it. At least not right now. Special treasure. Okay. Look over in Titus. Titus. That's New Testament. Chapter 2. Titus 2. Paul writes this. Look in verse, let's pick it up in 13. It's kind of middle of the sentence, but it kind of makes the point here. Look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, so we're looking for him to come back, his appearing. Fourteen. Jesus gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. 
So his zeal, the zeal of the Lord, is he's going to go find his people. I guarantee you he's going to move heaven and earth. And the call goes forth. If you will listen to it, would you like to be that special people group? If so, your zeal has to rise up to the level of his. Because what we're talking about, folks, is a wedding. Can you imagine any wedding? Maybe you were in one. I don't know. Where one of the parties was just super pumped up, and the other was going, what time are we supposed to start? Is this the right day? You want to put this off for a day or two? Look for him. You want to marry someone that's like that? Neither does God. He wants a person like himself. And he is very zealous over this issue. So Jesus gave himself for that. That scripture we just read looks to be almost like it's an identical copy of what he wrote in Ephesians 5. That Jesus Christ gave himself for the church. I mean, almost the same language. That he might redeem himself and present a church called a bride back to himself. But she needs to respond to his zeal and be zealous as well for the, the same things. Because they're supposed to be become one. And we can't have a different agenda here. Our agenda has to match his agenda. Or you will not be a part of this group. Amen? Y'all hear that? You can't cut it in any other way. All right, so it'll all happen at the end. He says, we're looking for the appearance of Jesus. When he comes back, that is the end. One more scripture about that. Look over at Zephaniah, Old Testament. Zephaniah, Old Testament. Chapter 3. Let's see what zeal does that concerning this issue in time. This entire section in Zephaniah is about the end time. In verse 8, you see that, because he says, chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations, so all the nations, to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured by the fire of my jealousy or zeal. So, I said, when zeal happens, there's a twofold thing going on. If you're on the wrong side of the equation, you're going to get judged. See the, the battle of Armageddon. They will get judged by this fire. On the right side of the equation, you get the bride. And the amazing love of God reaching out to her. Kind of like what happened with uh, the Jews coming out of Egypt. You know, they had this cloud. On one side it was fire. Fire to the enemies. Did I get it backwards? And on the other side it was good. Daylight on one side, darkness on the other. I mean, depending on which side of the thing you were on is either good or really bad. Same thing is going to happen again. So he's going to bring them all together through his zeal. And then here's what he's going to do concerning that special people. Verse 9. For I will restore to the peoples a pure language. That's probably tongues. That they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. Now here, you got to start underlining some words. This, was, this is what's going to describe that special people. They're in one accord. They are unified. They have one purpose. The same purpose as the Lord. One accord. 
Verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, they're going to be those who worship him in spirit and in truth. The daughter of my dispersed one shall bring my offering. In that day, you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst, get this, those who rejoice in pride. You're walking in pride? Get ready. You're out of here. You shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will lead in your midst a meek, humble people who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel. A remnant. There is your special treasure people. They are meek. They are humble. They trust God. They worship God. They are one accord. They are the remnant. You know, if you really think about it, just from a logical standpoint, how hard is it to get a, a whole bunch of people to agree about on one thing? That's not going to be impossible. So it's not surprising that it comes down to a remnant. And all through the Bible, I mean, you'll find this remnant. The ratio is like one out of ten. That's being probably generous. Of the Christians. Not one in ten of all people, of the Christians. So, it's a small group of people. But that's what they're going to look like. We just discovered a remnant. Verse 13. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness. They'll speak no lies. Nor shall a, a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed their flocks and lie down. And no one shall make them afraid. <clears throat> now look at verse 14. This is an interesting little section. Because what I'm about to describe to you is a love song. This is what's going to happen in that day between the bride and the bridegroom. 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Again, when you see daughter of Zion, think bride. Shadow Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. That's, so you're going to be pure and clean and pretty like Ephesians 5 said you should be. He has cast out your enemy, the king of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall see, see disaster no more. In that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. To Zion, let not your hands be weak. I love verse 17. Put bridegroom there. The Lord your God in your midst, <laughs> the mighty one, he will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This is like Song of Solomon stuff. What's he doing? This is the, the happiest day of his life. He's singing to her. You want to have some fun? Let's have some fun. Let's warm up for this. Ladies, how many of you would like to hear your husband sing over you right now? Just three minutes. We got one, two... He ain't here. Three. Your hand was up there. Yeah, left hand. Okay, over here. Okay, everybody's been busted. You rise up. Let's sing to your wife right now. You're not ready. Okay. Oh, my God. I <laughs> learned. Oh, 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 oh. And here's the good news, Ronald. You're supposed to sing back. <laughs> Oh, shut the eyes! Pure language. 
Read Song of Solomon. That's what they're doing. Man, they're losing all stuff, you know. They're just letting it go. Running around, acting like idiots. You know, I'm Pentecostal. Charismatic. Love the Lord. Nothing else matters. If I had to be a fool to place him, I would be more than a fool. You know, you just do it. Isn't it? So, the zeal of the Lord is going to accomplish all this. Especially at the end. I want to turn to the book of Isaiah for a minute because he has much to say about the end. Probably as much as any prophet out there. That guy is amazing. So, let's look at a couple of things he has to say about the end time and zeal. Now, there are two sections of, of uh, Isaiah that are often referred to as Isaiah's Apocalypse. Or Isaiah's Book of Revelation. That's what Revelation means, Apocalypse. So, these are the sections of Isaiah that for sure talk about the end. Okay, And there's other sections in there as well to speak to, but these, these are definitely there. It's chapter 2 through 4, okay? Chapter 2 through 4 really has to do with the end times. You can read it later. Or you know, you know, get, get close in on that. And the other section that goes with it is chapter 24 through 27. Those two groups come together and they're called Isaiah's Apocalypse. Very interesting stuff. So let's, let's go to Isaiah's Apocalypse. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2. What happens in the end? Okay. Well, chapter 2, verse 10. Here's a message to the world. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty. Now, you're going to see that term a lot. The glory of His majesty. Why does that even matter? Because now he's talking about here comes the king. Here comes King Jesus. And he's not coming on the donkey this time, both. He's not coming like a little carpenter from Nazareth. He's coming arrayed like a king. With crowns on and, and these eyes that are blazing. I mean, this guy has got full of zeal. Both for war and for love. He's a turned on guy. So, He's telling other folks, you know, those that are not going to be for him, you better hide. From the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. Now, we said earlier in Zephaniah, he had a few things that he's going to take out of the church. Pride was one of them. Let's keep reading. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything that is proud and lofty and lifted up, and it will be brought low. He is the king. Okay? He's coming that way. Look over verse 19. So here's what the people do. He's sitting. Go hide. So they do. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth, from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake the earth mightily. And we talked about it. He's going to shake it one more time. So He's talking about that. When He rises to shake, the majesty of the Lord is about to be seen. And if you're on the good side, good. If you're on the bad side, high. If you want to get a 
Go read some stuff in the book of Revelation about this. Read the book of uh, Revelation chapter 6. The end of that. Verses 15 through 17. They do exactly what these guys say to do. They hide in the rocks from his presence. They don't want to repent. They want to get away from him. Look down in uh, verse, let's keep reading, uh, verse 20. In that, man, in that day a man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they have made, each for himself to worship, to the moles and bats, to go into the cleft of the rocks and into the crags of, of the rugged rocks, from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake the earth mightily. Now that is one zealous expression. Did he use the word zeal? But you got the picture of it. This is going to be the best movie ever. You think these movies today have some great techniques. Woo! This will blow everybody's mind. The majesty of the Lord when he rises to shake. Now let's look over the other section of his apocalypse, chapter 24. Chapter 24. Kind of show you something here. Look at verse 1. It says, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface, and scatters abroad its inhabitants. And so he just describes every section of mankind. Priests, people, maids, buyers, lenders, sellers. Everybody gets affected by what he's going to do. The whole earth. Take it up in verse 4. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants. And why? Because... They have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, or what that means, and broken the everlasting covenant. Folks, see, we're, we're there. You know, where is it now that kids get to describe their own sex now? I mean, I'm not sure yet. Maybe a boy, maybe a girl. And I want to change next week. Yeah, this is crazy. Change the ordinance. Are you serious? This is unbelievably ridiculous. I can't believe we're talking about it. And they break the everlasting covenant. That's the one with the Lord who wants to take away everything wrong in your life. There's nothing He won't forgive. But we want Him to bend to our law and our definition of life. How stupid can you get? They mock Him. They hate Him. They act like they're the king. Have you ever watched that stuff on TV with those four horsemen of the uh, weirdo ladies? AOC and uh, those other ones. They're idiots! Excuse me for being so Christian. I'll clean that up dramatically for y'all. I cannot believe we, they're on TV! And have all these followers. What is going on with us? This is beyond the pale. It's ridiculous. And so that's why this is happening. We, we've come this far. You think God's just going to sit there and go, well, they're my kids, and one of these days, I love them so much, and one of these days, maybe they'll turn. No. He will move. 
The zeal of the host of, of his, for his house will make him move. So they're moving into his house now. Right? Nothing is sacred anymore. So he's going to respond. Well, uh, look down to, you know, fire comes. He's going to get them. Look down to verse 14. This is interesting. There's a whole litany of things that's, that's going to happen here because of the wrong. And then out of, the, out of nowhere, there's a little couple of verses here that just sort of pops up. It's completely out of the, uh, uh, the rest of the chapter. It, what it is is a group of people, I'm going to call them the good guys, all of a sudden show up. It's like a play. You've got all this stuff going on. You know, damage is going on. And then all of a sudden you have over here Arnold Schwarzenegger saying, I'll get back. The good guys show up just for a little interlude and make a little statement, and then we go back to the damage that's been going on over here. Okay? So all this bad stuff going on, and all of a sudden here comes the good guys. They want to make a statement right in the middle of it all. And here's what they say. Look at verse 14. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. So when all this jazz is going up, what are they saying? The king. They're not noticing all this stuff. They're singing about what they see. The king. The majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Therefore, glorify the Lord in the dawning light. For the name of the Lord God of Israel in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we have heard songs. Glory to the righteous. That's the song. Glory to the righteous. And the rest of the world is getting smoked by that zeal. But we're reacting in the same kind of zeal he has for us lower. We're saying, yeah, bring it. If you want to see a scripture that is like this, look in the book of Revelation chapter 11. You don't have to go there right now. We go read it. Because it talks about the same thing. All this stuff, this judgment's going on. These witnesses are just kicking the earth's rear end. And then all of a sudden, the 24 elders start singing, Glory to the Lord! They're not noticing the damage. They're noticing the glory of His majesty. So I don't know what you're looking at. Look at verse 10. No, I'm sorry. Chapter 26. There's another song that kicks off. Because this, this stuff keeps going on. You know, all the, all the destruction. Another song kicks off in chapter 26. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. You will keep them in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. So, you know, he is describing in, in the midst of this apocalypse, there is a city. It is New Jerusalem. Open up its gates for those who will enter in. Okay? We have a strong city. Who gets to go there? Those who trust him. These special people. All right? We get to go on in. The rest of it, he, well, like verse 5, he brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city, he lays it low. So there's two cities. 
One of the world, we call that Babylon. And the one of the Lord, Jerusalem. One's going down, the other one's coming up. It's a good time for the right guys. It gets way low if you're another one. Look at verse 10. I'm, I'm sorry, 7. This is a very, very interesting section. To me, what you're going to read here is the heart cry of that group of people who are called special. All this trouble is going on, and here's what they say. Verse 7, the way of the just is upright, this O most high, most upright. You weigh the path of the just. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. Man, I love this stuff. Lord, we've been waiting for you. What are you waiting for, folks? You waiting for a raise? Waiting for a new car? God, what? Someone's listening. What are you waiting for? Waiting to retire? What is your passion? That's the real question. That's what you'll wait for. Ask yourself, what are you waiting for? What are you living for? Great question. Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name. Does this sound like zeal? My zeal is for the Lord. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. Sounds like a bride speaking to her bridegroom. With my soul, I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn uprightness. So that's the bride speaking to her bridegroom. Man, I'm waiting for you. I'm getting ready. I'm preparing myself for you. Every day I get up hoping that this is the day. Ain't it? It's a love cry. Then they say this. This is a very, very interesting couple of verses we're going to read here in a minute. Verse 10. Verse 10 through 11. It's one of those mystery verses. It says, Let grace be shown to the wicked... Yet he will not learn. Uh, uh, he will not learn righteousness. That's an interesting thought just by itself, and I think it's something you should think about. I know sometimes we, we get so eager to get someone saved, we forget that they don't want to be saved. And you can show good things to someone who doesn't want to get saved, and all they're going to do is rip you up. You don't supposed to cast your pearls before swine. And you're not being a mean person if you don't be nice to someone who is wicked. Some of us have a real hard time with that. We've got to be nice all the time. Of course, a lot of us don't have that issue at all. Right? Uh, I'm not mentioning any names. But, but there's a wisdom here. Folks, those who want to walk with him, Jesus wants them. Those that don't want to walk with him, He's going to reject them. Don't go save what he's going to get rejecting. Amen? It may get a little closer to your home than you like. But at some point, you've got, to, you've got to be wise here. Call your shots. Let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. 
in the land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly. He won't change. So if I try to drag him in to, to the wedding feast of the Lord, he's going to still be, continue to be an idiot. He will not change his clothes into a wedding garment. He will act like he's supposed to be there when he really should have changed by now. What does God do to people like that? He kicks them right back out again. He's supposed to change when you come to the Lord. He loves you in your sin, but he loves you too much to leave you in your sin. He wants you to change and be like him. Pure, righteous, holy, all that stuff. All right, keep leaving. Verse 11. Let's go back. Let's read the whole verse 10 again. Let grace be shown to the wicked. He will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? So when his majesty is coming in, you've got a group of people who are hiding themselves in the rocks. And so those people, even if you try to save them and they don't want to be saved, they're not going to be looking at it. They will not behold the majesty of the Lord. They're hiding from him. They don't want him. Not really. <laughs> Verse 11 is interesting. And I want to change the reading of it a little bit. I actually read several versions of the Bible to get the exact meaning of this next verse. Because I think the New King James about halfway messes it up. It has a little bit of the correct thing in the footnote. The other versions of the Bible bring it together a little bit better. So I want to read it as these other versions. Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see they're not looking at you. But they will see and be ashamed. They will see and be ashamed with your zeal for your people and the fire for your enemies devour them. Let me read that again. When you lift up your hand, they're not looking, but when you... Reveal your zeal for your people. And the fire that comes with that, how it destroys the enemies. Then people who are sort of in a weird place, then they'll notice. Who are these people? I've I, I kind of messed that up a little bit, but you know, folks, I think you've got three groups of people here. Number one, the ones that you want to be, hopefully. Right, people. You're going to see the majesty of the Lord. You're going to say, he is my king. We sang that like crazy this morning. That was so anointed. I wonder why. It was soft. Singing to the king. You are my king. Amen? They're going to see his majesty. Then you got these people. They're not going to learn righteousness. They don't want it. To them... Go hide yourself in the rocks. Don't even try to look because you, you don't want to look. And I'm not spending any more time on that group of people. It's over. Hell enlarges its mouth for them. Are y'all with me? There's a third group. It's kind of hidden in there. Who are they talking about? That if you, God, if He would show your zeal for your people, and how the fire of your zeal consumes their enemies. 
Then these people who don't see will see. Do you understand that? There's a group of people who are not yet seen. But when God's zeal is revealed, then they will see. Who are those people? The Jews. The Jews. That's interesting, isn't it? In Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 39. Let me show you something here. This is so interesting to me. Ezekiel 39. You know, God went through centuries trying to fix Israel. He married her, called her his, his, his wife, his woman, his wife. And I, we, I've already told you that the whole issue of zeal primarily has to do with the, with the marriage ceremony or the marriage relationship. So he was jealous over Israel. But she kept whoring around. That's what the Bible calls it. Worshipping other gods, idols and stuff like that. And he kept trying to correct her and correct her and correct her with all kinds of stuff. She would not hear him. And so he just kept busting her. And finally, he completely busted her. They completely lost their country and destroyed their temple. It was all gone. The zeal of God did that. But when it was done, we find ourselves in Ezekiel 39. Ezekiel is, is the prophet that saw it all happened. The first half of the book of Ezekiel is about before it happened. The second half is it's already happened. He saw it happen. And so something shifts when his zeal is actually acted upon. And he destroys the country. Chapter 39, verse 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will bring back the captives of, J of Jacob. They're already in captivity. And I will have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name after they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me when they have dwelt safely in their own land and no one has made them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' hands, and I am hallowed or made holy in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them any longer. I will pour out my spirit upon them. So this is marks the shift. From this point forward, every time the zeal of the Lord was discussed concerning Israel, it was about restoring Israel. He was done with the anger part of it. She took it on the chin for what she had done. And once he did that, he said, okay, now I'm gonna, I want to finish it. And my holiness will be demonstrated by the fact that I restore you. It still hasn't been done, folks. You know what I mean? It's, they have a little bit of it. we got a nation over there, but... Do they serve the Lord? Do the Jews serve the Lord? En masse, as they say. No. The biggest enemies of the cross today are the Jews. That's the truth. Hollywood. Mainly Jewish. The press. Mainly Jewish. The monies that are against Christ. 
mainly Jewish. I say all of it is, but mainly is. They hate that. That's the truth. It's all in the plan of God, though. And like the scripture we read in Isaiah, if you showed them, they're not going to see it. The church has been around for 2,000 years. Has it saved the Jews? I mean, honestly, not yet. Okay, are y'all with me? Then I'll lose you. But the promise is there, right? And the scripture in Isaiah said, Lord, if you'll show them your zeal for your bride, it will open their eyes. Make them jealous. Look at Romans. Romans chapter 10. Verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have, they have a zeal for God, but not according to right to knowledge. For being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is an end of the law for righteousness. For, to everyone who believes. They, so at Paul's time, they still hadn't done it. Have things gotten better? No. Look down in verse uh, 19. I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy, zeal, by those who are not a nation, the bride. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. That was a quote from Deuteronomy 32. He quoted the Old Testament. He did back in the days of Moses. They're going to fail this whole deal. And they're going to go into, I mean, really darkness. But there is a point still ahead of us where he's going to provoke them back to the zeal for the Lord that they once had. But we don't yet see it. But we're moving there Inexorably. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. He's not done that. Verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. That through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So the process started when he turned to the Gentiles and started saving them. But has it completed yet? Has it gotten to fullness yet? Has it? Really? Honestly? Verse 12. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. By any means I may, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are in my flesh and save some of them. For if their casting away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So, he's going to get us there. Verse 25. 
I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. Amen? So, what's waiting? And that's the question, really. All right, we're not there yet, obviously. We don't see a great coming in to the church. And we see portions. I mean, there is some, no doubt about it. But to say that all of Israel has turned to the Lord, you know, just be honest with yourself, hadn't happened. What still remains as a work of the Gentiles that will provoke them to the jealousy that he's talking about? There's a lot still to be done by the church that will finally get to them. So what things do you think he would use? Well, I think maybe Moses. They all kind of admire him, don't they? How about Elijah? The works that he did. They really respect him. What if the church moved in the power of Moses and Elijah? Think that might get them? How about the wealth? Good God, they have the wealth. What if the wealth of the wicked was converted to the Gentiles and to the bride? Would that get to them? See, I think there's a lot of big things still ahead of us that God's going to do. And the beauty of it all is he's had this thing kind of hidden in his heart. I'm really waiting for Israel to come back together again. And they're, you know, they, were, they were cut off. They were the natural root. They were cut off. We were drafted in. They're going to be drafted right back in. And there will be an amazing fullness of the church that we don't yet see because they have a big part of this that we, I don't know if we'll ever get it without them. But I'm excited that this is still ahead of us and we get to play in this game. That's why we're encouraging you. Ask God to heat up your zeal for the Lord. Amen. Did you learn anything? Was that interesting? Very interesting. Still happening. I will say this, that when he comes back, and I mean, we don't know when all this is going to take place. One of the scriptures, one of the great definitions of the book of the, uh, of the time of tribulation in the Old Testament is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Big trouble, I think, for those guys during the, during the time of the tribulation. Big trouble. I think that's going to be a part of the equation as well. But we know this, that when he comes back, every eye will behold him. And those who pierced him will wail as for a lost first son. That's the Jews. They're going to see it eventually. That all this time, they've been fighting their own Savior. Isn't that crazy? But the amazing thing about God's heart is, he's not going to hold it on them. He's going to say, finally, you see, come on in. Isn't that great? That's the God that you serve. Pretty good God. Lord, I just pray that we can see this. That we can do our part. You know, Lord, the, the love of God is amazing to me. It is, it is so pure. One of my first revelations of, is of that. That the love of God is so pure that there is no way that you don't love everyone the same. Else it wouldn't be pure. 
So I know you love all people that way. And yet some will not return it. But I know you love Israel that way. And I'm praying for them. And I'm asking you, Lord, to begin to move by your Spirit upon them. And part of that I know is that you move upon those who took their place as a special treasure people and let us become that bride with zeal like yours and then call them back. That will be a great pleasure to me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Tonight is six. Worship.